This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome, I'm your host, Eric McNulty. Much of the attention around disaster leadership goes to response. However, a lot of what happens in response is shaped by the policy choices in mitigation, preparedness, and recovery. We are fortunate to be joined for this episode of Leader ReadyCast by seasoned and innovative policymaker, Alice Hill. Alice is currently a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where she focuses on potentially catastrophic global events, such as climate change. Her perspective has been shaped by an interesting career in which she has served as federal prosecutor and judge, special counsel to Janet Napolitano when she was secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and special assistant to the president and senior director of National Security Council in the Obama administration. We're particularly proud that she is also an alumnus of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. She was named our Meta Leader of the Year in 2015 for her work on climate policy. Her forthcoming book on climate resilience from Oxford University Press is Building a Resilient Tomorrow, Preparing for the Coming Climate Disruption. Alice, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be joining you. Well, it should be an interesting conversation. Now, the first thing I want to ask you about is, is this work you've done in D.C.? You've worked on policy at the, at the absolute highest levels. What are some of your top meta leadership lessons learned on working at the intersection of subject matter expertise and elected officials? How do you lead up, across, and beyond in that environment? Well, no, never underestimate the power of process and communication. Uh, in my experience, particularly for pro- uh, policy that will require buy-in from a large number of agencies, Uh, In situations where there is no crisis at hand, you really have to work with representatives from those agencies so that they understand why the policy will help their agency achieve uh, the agency's particular mission. And that means a lot of meetings, uh, listening to people, understanding their concerns, and then trying to take the policy proposal and shape it in a manner that resonates uh, with what they need to accomplish. Absent process, uh, and none of us enjoy process typically, it's very difficult to get things done in the absence of a crisis. So invest in communicating with those that you need to have uh, join your initiative. And it must be interesting, I mean, thinking about the stakeholders you had to deal with, you've got the various agencies, you've got Congress, you've got the White House. What were some of the, uh, the similarities and differences of going to, you know, let's say going to an agency versus having to deal with members of Congress and their staffs? Well, going to the agencies, uh, you're working with career personnel uh, who have seen uh, different administrations come and go. Uh, In some instances, those career 
personnel may be a little suspicious of what the political appointee's intentions are. But quickly, if you communicate that you are interested in accomplishing what they hope to accomplish and helping them, uh, you can win them over. In uh, my dealings with congressional staffers and members, uh, I've encountered a great deal of interest in ways to also uh, accomplish um, particular goals. But I would say that for those members of Congress, they often had their own goals already in mind and were uh, looking for support in um, from me and other policymakers in helping them understand ways they could achieve those goals. Um, but in all instances, finding that common ground uh, it was the way to start on the journey of actually getting to a, a policy that would be workable. On top of all of that challenge, uh, you also had the challenge of leading up to the general public. And I know one of the ongoing uh, difficulties in that area is to get the public to take long-term, potentially catastrophic risk seriously. That may be getting a bit easier now that we've had these massive wildfires, we see flooding, we see drought, we see a lot of these severe weather events that kind of put it right up in your face. But what have you learned about having to lead out to a public that may not be scientifically literate, maybe a little more short-term focused when you're trying to think about these big, massive, complex challenges? Well, thinking about your message is um, very important. And um, uh, with climate change, certainly when I started working on climate change a decade ago, people seemed to think uh, it would just be a bad case of the flu and that um, it would be something that would uh, go away if it happened at all. Of course, uh, many of the changes that climate change brings uh, will be uh, permanent changes, that is higher temperatures, ocean acidification. In many instances, there'll be stronger storms and more extreme precipitation. As those events have begun to unfold and people have now recognize that uh, the storms are made bigger as a result of climate change, it's been easier uh, to capture the imagination. In all of it, uh, being plain spoken um, and not uh, taking out an alarmist message, but also not pretending that it's um, something it isn't, I have found is the most effective. Uh, in terms of communicating uh, the nature of the risk. Most um, people I found uh, would understand uh, once it was explained to them and they had had a chance to think through for themselves what the ramifications are of a warmer world and how that could affect so many different aspects of uh, human civilization. Yeah, you know, my own personal experience on this, and I, I have done work off and on, on in this area, was in, uh, I forget if it was an IPCC report or another, where I saw that chickadees may depart their traditional range. And here in Massachusetts, they are the state bird. And when I would share with people that our state bird may long, no longer be around, that sort of caught them because it was very tangible and local. Um, yes. And, and that kind of thing is... Uh, you never know what to capture the imagination of, of the average person and get them to, to, to sit up and say, hey, I've got to pay attention to this. Well, I do think uh, when there has been a crisis, that is also an opportunity for uh, rapid progress. 
So um, I've come to call them no more moments uh, in different communities um, because they have been hit by a disaster. Uh, sometimes take that experience and turn it into greater resilience going forward. Houston is a wonderful example of that after Hurricane Harvey, when something like 9 trillion gallons of rain uh, was dumped on uh, Houston, which really had not uh, had a building code or um, serious flood planning, uh, lots of uh, hard surfaces, no place for that amount of rain to go, and um, just devastation after Harvey. The Houston, who had fought uh, any kind of building standard on their own, adopted a building standard requiring elevation of buildings to uh, pr better protect uh, homes in the face of future flooding. And that was their no more moment. Uh, they decided, even though there was some op local opposition, some objection that it would cost more to build the homes, uh, the city council and mayor uh, pushed through, and now their new homes will be much more resilient to future flooding. We need to capture uh, whenever that occurs and take that moment to leapfrog ahead in our resilience efforts. Well, that's good news because uh, you know, big chunks of Houston are basically, you know, they are in a floodplain. So it's, uh, it's good to see that they're recognizing the geography and the consequences thereof. Right. It's basically very flat, a lot of hard surfaces, and uh, not a lot of places for the water to go. So very serious engagement now, and um, that's exciting to see. Uh, similarly, I think in California, we're seeing much greater attention paid to wildfire risk than was occurring just two years earlier. So uh, disasters, as devastating as they are to the community, they can offer an opportunity uh, for us to have a more resilient future going forward. I want to shift gears just a little bit and, and talk about your time at DHS. Now, that's a sprawling entity full of many agencies put together after 9-11. It's a constant challenge in connectivity. What did you see in your time there that worked well to create unity of effort across those, those various agencies? And what do you think could be done differently to improve coordination, cooperation, and even collaboration across those agencies and the agencies beyond that which they have to, which they have to work? So DHS uh, is um, cobbled together from many different agencies, and it's still uh, on its way to um, being one DHS. That's how we framed it during the Obama administration. What I found well worked well uh, were issues that cut across different particular agencies within DHS. So uh, something like hum human trafficking, which I uh, led the development of an anti-human trafficking initiative at the request of the secretary of, at the time, Janet Napolitano. That initiative called the Blue Campaign uh, really garnered support across the 22 component agencies of DHS. Uh, it's a compelling issue. It's an issue that everyone understands uh, we need to do better to combat human trafficking. And uh, so you found a united effort, different agencies bringing their resources, their talents, 
and sharing them across DHS to help contribute to the Blue Campaign. Uh, similarly, our initial efforts in climate adaptation, uh, I found that there was a great deal of interest across the different components to see how they could contribute to understanding what the risks were to DHS and what needed to be done. I think it becomes more complicated when you have just uh, one or two component agencies and there's um, a bit of overlap in who's going to do what. And that reflects legacy uh, understanding of who's responsible uh, for which particular task. And that's where I found it was harder to move forward because it was less clear who really was responsible in that instance. I think that further work from Congress could help. I think I personally believe that DHS, it might be time now uh, for us to look and see if there's certain components of DHS that could be um, reshuffled or uh, moved to other agencies uh, now that we understand uh, better how all the pieces fit together. It is no question about it. A incredibly important department for the United States and for uh, the security of the nation. It's also a very difficult department to manage. Um, and to the extent we can give greater thought to how we can have our employees who work so hard for the different mission areas of DHS identify as DHS employees rather than employees of their particular agency, ICE, CBP, FEMA, Coast Guard, we will be closer to having a one DHS. Not there yet, uh, and we need to find ways to help have that vision of a united department materialize. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I do think that um, the issue you spend so much time working on, climate change, uh, is actually going to significantly shape the mission of the various DHS components going forward. And they may actually find ways as they redefine that mission in the, in the face of rising sea levels and various other conditions that may push them together in ways they hadn't thought were logical 10 years ago, maybe very logical five or 10 years from now. Oh, I believe so. Um, obviously, FEMA will have a great deal of additional pressures as a result of climate impacts, but also other components. CBP um, and ICE, the immigration pressures are predicted to increase significantly, uh, and there is certainly some academic analysis that shows with the surge of individuals from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, that there is a climate component to that. It's not the, the cause of that surge, but it's a certainly a contributing factor, some of the climate impacts those countries are suffering. Uh, so they'll, we'll see greater pressure uh, there, and certainly the Coast Guard with its port facilities, but also in the Arctic, we'll see um, a lot more activity. We already are on a geopolitical front, and that will call on DHS to be ready to be responsive in that area as well. Uh, so as we think through how um, climate will uh, unfold the changes that warming temperatures bring, 
it will affect everyone. And then, of course, we have much of our workforce often outside, and greater uh, temperatures will affect their ability to work and really be uh, safe outdoors. So we'll have to look at that as well from a, just a health perspective of our workforce. It's a great way to, cap, to capture all of that. A lot of different impacts. I think we're just beginning to, to scratch the surface of understanding what they're all going to be. Now, a, a word we've used several times already on this broadcast, <laughs> and it's in your book, and it's been in your work for a long time, is resilience. I found it to be a term that's used by many people in many different ways. How do you define resilience? And then what do you see as the most critical factors to community and national resilience? Because I think people see it somewhat distinct from personal resilience. Well, I don't have a resilience definition that I always turn to. Uh, Early on in my career of working on climate, uh, resilience was the uh, word that was frequently used. And while I was at the White House, uh, we took a look at coming up with a common definition for resilience for the federal government. Discover, we discovered that there were many such definitions. And frankly, the sense was if we spent time trying to divine the word in a satisfactory way to all of the various stakeholders, we wouldn't actually get to the substance of resilience. And so for me, resilience is being prepared for an impact, a, a, a stressful event, and then being able to uh, absorb that impact and recover uh, quickly uh, from that. And, and hopefully continue at the same level or even a higher level going forward. Uh, But I don't um, adhere to any particular definition, and I think that's been the beauty of the word in terms of its usage across the globe. It is a word that uh, really first appeared sometime in the early 1800s. I think it was a polymath uh, who uh, first coined the term or first appeared, uh, a Scotsman. I can't recall his name right now. And uh, over time, uh, it sort of bumped along in usage. And if you go to the Google and and trace the usage, just an uh, almost a vertical increase in how frequently it's uh, employed now today. So you see it everywhere uh, in personal resilience and climate resilience in resilience of different structures, uh, what have you. It's a word that I think communities have found safe in a highly charged environment with climate. Uh, Sometimes that has been a difficult uh, word. There's just uh, immediately uh, a negative reaction from some constituents. So politicians have resorted to using resilience. So I find it's a little bit like sustainability. It is uh, broadly used, not 100% sure what what is meant, but it is an opportunity um, to have people begin to discuss an issue. And then, of course, they have to get much more precise if they're going to talk about how do they become resilient to more extreme precipitation, for example, or wildfires. And that will require greater precision in language. Resilience, the use of the word of resilience, however, brings people into the conversations and allows them to get those started. That, to me, is a very important thing that needs to occur, and it still hasn't occurred sufficiently across the nation, across the globe, uh, to get people to think deeply about what we need to do to prepare uh, to be able to 
withstand future uh, stresses and catastrophic events. What are some of the interesting things you're hearing as you have those conversations? Well, you hear all sorts of things. Uh, I, you hear, um, I'll talk about resilience, but please let's not talk about climate because I don't think climate's changing. That is, I hear less frequently than I did when I first started working in this area. I hear a great deal about personal resilience as well uh, and the recognition that for any uh, disaster preparedness, it starts with what efforts individuals have taken to uh, prepare themselves, to know that uh, help may not arrive for 72 hours, so we should each have our plan and our supplies at hand if we can. And then it expands to community resilience and in the first instance, for me, that typically is looking at the built environment and making sure that uh, these long-term investments that we make as um, through our governments or through uh, large private entities are built to last and can can really survive the kind of new uh, catastrophes that they'll be subjected to as our climate warms, and also any other stresses that are reasonably foreseeable for the service life of that particular building or infrastructure asset. This is obviously you've, you've pulled together in your, in your forthcoming book, which will be out in October. Tell us a bit more about what's in the book that, that's beyond what we've talked about so far. I know you paid great attention to the, the intersection between infrastructure and social systems. Is that an, uh, one of the topics you tackle in the book? That's one of 10 topics that we tackle in the book. I have a co-author, Leo Martinez, who was an economist at Treasury, in Treasury Department in the Obama administration. And essentially, we um, looked across various sectors and issues uh, in which resilience will play a role. Our focus is on climate resilience. So we looked at three uh, major levers that can increase resilience. Uh, one we just talked about, which is the built environment, making sure that uh, we are uh, understanding that if you just build to what was the storms that you experienced in the past, your building may be wiped out in the future going forward. Uh, so uh, focus on that as well as on uh, another lever, the legal system, uh, as you mentioned in the opening, I spent uh, almost a quarter century uh, in the law, and uh, there is great potential for the legal system to drive resilience. We're just at the beginning of that, but we talk about some of the uh, cases that are currently unfolding, which will force uh, resilience to the forefront and will probably drive more resilient decision-making. Uh, and uh, another major lever, of course, is our markets, the real estate market, uh, the financial markets, the insurance markets, and uh, we examine how those markets could help uh, build a more resilient um, communities as well as nation, uh, and uh, we also take a look internationally as well. And then uh, we turn to some of the tools that are available. Uh, so one are cognitive tools. We all have 
optimism bias. Uh, we think somehow these climate impacts won't hurt us. Uh, and we all have availability bias. That's what makes it so easy to make progress immediately after an event because it's fresh in everybody's mind. And we talk about how we can take advantage of and work around some of these cognitive biases to be able to um, affect better policies that drive resilience. We also look at uh, data. We are in the golden age of data, how we could better use that and make it more accessible to decision makers. Uh, and we look at um, financing and how we can raise more money uh, to invest in resilience measures. And then finally, the last portion of the book are, is focused on um, really the great disruptors that could um, knock us off our course in terms of being resilient to climate impacts. And those include health impacts, which we I've mentioned briefly, but uh, very uh, severe health challenges uh, come with warming temperatures. And we haven't really come to grips with those yet, um, but will have a great impact on human health. Also, migration pressures, touched on those, but uh, really uh, many, many people will be on the move as a result of changes in their uh, local climate uh, and how will nations deal with uh, displaced persons both internally and externally. Um, and we also look at migration pressures. So as we um, uh, see this and, and understanding that and then what those migration pressures will do to national security in terms of uh, could exacerbate existing tensions, social tensions, and conflict. And finally, um, climate change will exacerbate uh, inequality. So um, we look at ways that we can help alleviate the um, challenges that will come with uh, more severe impacts occurring. And uh, of course, those who have uh, the fewest means and already uh, are suffering from greater challenges will find it more difficult to be prepared. Through all of these chapters, we look at uh, ways that policy can help uh, drive greater resilience and overcome some of the uh, obvious um, uh, obstacles that are ahead. Well, I can, I can see in all you say, there's going to be ample opportunity for um, meta leaders to be building connectivity and to help drive change to the system as it changes all around us. So uh, I hate to say bad times make for lots of work for folks in this business, but it, but it does. Um, and, and look forward to them rising to that challenge. I actually think that climate change is um, one place where uh, particularly, um, well, many places that meta leadership matters, but um, because climate affects virtually everything, there is an opportunity for leadership in any field, uh, be it in public health, be it in the financial markets, be it as an emergency manager, city planner, in those that are um, dealing with our borders uh, to help understand what these risks are and come up with ideas on how to mitigate and reduce the risks. Right now, we have uh, a, only a 
small number of people who are uh, seriously thinking about these threats. And uh, this is an opportunity for really anyone to educate him or herself to understand the threats and then what could be done in their particular field of expertise. Um, as I tell young people, I view it as the Full Employment Act, there will always be a climate aspect to any problem uh, going forward. And to the extent that uh, they can shed light on what can be done, they can often not only save lives, uh, but also reduce a lot of suffering going forward. Well, you've mentioned the importance of policy in this, and so I'd like to close our broadcast with a question. Uh, Thinking forward, what advice would you have for young people just getting into a career in policymaking or hoping to? You've had lots of interesting experiences uh, along the way to get you there. What, what advice would you pass on to that next generation? Well, my personal uh, approach is not so much to focus on what your particular subject matter is that you're interested in, but rather um, for me, it's uh, who do I get to work with? And uh, on a personal level, will this challenge me and allow me to develop uh, a new skill that I haven't had or introduce me to a new network of people that I haven't come across yet. And over time, for young people to follow that, I think they'll have an opportunity to grow their relationships, which are very important. And then as any meta leader knows, that's where you stop and that's where uh, start and that's where it stops. That's where business gets done. So uh, paying attention to that, but also having a ready skill set so that when the moment arises that a skill is needed, uh, you're already prepared as a young person. I do think climate is also, it's, it is a topic or a subject matter area. It's so broad, however, you could find whatever is of interest in, uh, to you personally to deepen your expertise. But for me, I think the most important thing for a young person is to look at the opportunity and determine whether that opportunity will continue to open doors rather than close doors. When I was young, I wanted to have a career with many facets. I had no idea whether I'd be able to have that accomplished. Uh, sometimes I wondered if I could. And now, of course, now that I'm older, I can look back and I realize that I have been able to be a generalist in a world of specialists and have had a very varied career. Um, I think being open uh, to the ideas that I suggested have really helped me along that path and has allowed me to have experiences and meet people that I could only have uh, dreamed of when I was young. Uh, so I think it's thinking broadly, uh, looking at your skill sets and being mindful uh, that what you learn in the course of being a meta leader will redound to your benefit personally, uh, as well as you can make a huge contribution to others along the way. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom of what you've learned along the way, as well as giving us a better view into the challenges we're going to face in the future. Our thanks to Hal Silver for joining us today, and thanks to all of you for listening. Until our next episode of Leader ReadyCast, be ready for the moment when you're it, and be ready to lead. 
This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.